how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Patrick Hughes said he knew he wanted to become a filmmaker when he first saw the Coen Brothers film Raising Arizona. The action comedy led him down a path to make similar movies. He's best known for his work on Red Hill, The Expendables 3, and the Hitman Bodyguard films. In the sequel, Michael Bryce, played by Ryan Reynolds, continues his friendship with Darius Kincaid, played by Samuel L. Jackson, as they try to save Darius's wife, Sonya, played by Selma Hayek. In this interview, Hughes talks about making 35 short films, how to write villains with no dialogue, how action comedies fit the big screen experience, why great action sequences are often designed on location, and how to elevate action with stuntman and modern editing. There was a few instances where certain films played a hugely key dramatic role. Um, and it was certainly I would say the Coen brothers raising Arizona that had a huge impact on me. And I, I watched that. I was like 10 years old, I think, or nine, nine years old. And um, I shouldn't have watched it. And it's a, it's a black comedy, you know, it yeah. was the first time I'd seen a black comedy. Um, and that really sort of threw me for six um, because it was just, you know, this, this vision of, of hell on a motorbike chasing someone down and, He's robbing a, a gas station for, for diapers for his, his young child. And I just thought the absurdity of that, you know, with a shotgun. Um, so that really sort of just really, um, really caught my attention. And, and I, I was just like, what on earth is this? And whatever this is, I want to be involved in it. And then, um, you know, my, my dad was an actor. So I certainly grew up around that that uh industry and that environment and he's certainly played a huge role in in terms of you know we talk about stories and, and filmmaking and then he leaned me towards gave me a book on martin scorsese when i was young um and i, I remember reading that and then i had that epiphany moment that because i was quite young and i was i was reading it and it, then it dawned on me i was like oh wow there's actually one person that's made all these films 
and I didn't quite understand that concept. And then once I understood that concept, then I, I, um, yeah, I, I made a decision when I was like 11 years old. I was like, this, I want to make movies. That's what I want to do. And um, I set about doing it. I started playing with a Super 8 camera from that day forth. So what were your first couple? Of, I, mean, I think you made like three shorts and then Red Hill. And you're the writer and director on most of these, including Red Hill. How did that kind of come to be? Was it was it more leverage to come in with the script? Oh, or- that that I I made about to be honest, I've made about thirty five short films. Uh, they're not listed on the Internet Movie Database. So <laughs> what happened was I started playing around with a Super Eight camera and I made a bunch of films in my backyard and and they were sort of all action orientated. And I learned about you know I was blowing up my action figures and Han Solo and some of my star wars toys at the time and and then i was playing around with stop motion um and i think a lot of kids sort of get i certainly got obsessed with stop motion because you could create a whole dynamic world and i was you know i was kind of obsessed with lego and i built this whole sort of city on a board and then i realized oh i could place my camera and then i could move cars and boats and planes and and bring this sort of scale to it um and then um, I just, so then, and then I was in high school, I would just kept pursuing it and I made um, a bunch more short films. Uh, I think I made probably about five or six more short films. And then some of them were garbage and that's fine. And some of them were really like action orientated. I remember I made one with a, with a really dear friend of mine in Melbourne and it was, I think it was called 8.45 AM. And it was just about a kid that was late for school. And then I was like, it was all about like shooting this action sequence, how he got to school and jumping fences and dodging cars and all that sort of stuff. Um, And then when I was in high school, like towards the end of high school, I was getting really quite serious about it. And I set up a film program at at my high school and instead of studying photography, because I'd I'd done a lot of photography and I'd studied drama as well. But um, I asked the um, headmaster at the time if I could, if I could, make the last two years of my high school if I could focus on film and, and they set it, set up the course in that way that I wasn't able to do that because I really wanted to get into um, VCA film school in Melbourne and um, I realised in order to do that I, I was going to need uh, a really good showreel because it was, you know, there's, it's, it's quite hard to get into that course because they accept, I think it's like 11 or 12 students a year and um so, and then the, my last two graduating shorts, I, I made one was sort of an art film um, that, that was based, it was like a still film based, um, I, I shot a series of stills and it was sort of this super sci-fi dystopian sort of future world that I created. And, and that was certainly geared more in towards the art, art sort of film area. And, and then I made another short film at the same, in the same year, which was, um, it was i forget the name of it oh my lord i'm getting old uh it was it's called it was called truth or the morning after that's right and um it basically it was the hangover before the hangover came out i made the hangover it was about three friends that woke up after a massive bender of a weekend and one of them had lost his wallet one had lost his girlfriend the other had lost his lost his dignity or something but it all i lost his wallet and then and then it was all tied together um at the end, you sort of series of flashbacks, you realize they're all to blame. And that, and that both those shorts did really well, the still film and, and the, um, you know, again, that was sort of working in that comedy world. Um, and they went on to win a bunch of awards and, um, and then it got me straight into film school from there. And 
then I did three years at BCA. And, and then obviously while you're at film school, I was making another, I think you make three or two or three, another three shorts each year, but with your graduating short each year. So yeah, by the time I'd left film school, I was 21, 20. Yeah, I was 20. And um, I had a, you know, by that time I had a, a lot of short films under my belt and my graduating short was, again, it was a black comedy. It was about a film crew. It was about a director that, that, basically film crew that, that poses a film crew, but really they rob banks in broad daylight because, every, you know, it was about the obsession of cinema that you can yeah. actually get away with with daylight robbery because people get, get wooed by the magic of it all. Um, and that ended up playing at like 10 festivals. And that, that was sort of like an idea for a feature I wanted to make. And I, so essentially I just wrote the opening 20 minutes of it. Mm-hmm. Um, then I left film school and I was super duper broke. And then I realized uh, there was an opportunity with this short film festival called Tropfest, which was getting huge crowds. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said about the, so the following year I, I went and made a, a short for Tropfest. It was called The Lighter and that ended up winning Tropfest. Um, and I won best film. And, and then I got picked up by a, um, I started working commercials at that point. I got picked up by a production company that, and I was so sort of overnight, I was represented globally by a production company that called Radical Media. Um, so I was repped out of London, Paris, Sydney, New York, LA. And then I started, you know, started really sort of focusing on, on building a path, building inroads into the commercial world. Um, and then you know that 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 enabled me to work with some phenomenal crews, and I you know I was and I ended up having quite a very successful career in that and shooting around the world globally, and um, and then I actually made another short film. While I vowed I'd never make another short film, and I made another one. It was called um, Signs, and it was uh, it was before I made my first feature, Red Hill, and I, I vowed at the time I was like, this is the last short film I'm ever going to make, but it was um, it was a love story. Um, and I, I was interested in, in, in my first feature, Red Hill, there was a character that I wanted to explore this idea that a character, the villain in Red Hill doesn't say one line of dialogue throughout the whole film. And I was really curious if I could pull that off because it's, it was like a really sort of interesting writing technique that, that you do. And I still apply it to this day, which is like, okay, if you stripped all the dialogue away, how are these characters revealing themselves and the decision is actions that they're making. And so that short film was an exploration of that. And that ended up just going bananas on, on something called YouTube, which was sort of, um, you know, I wasn't really across the whole internet or social media at the time. A, A guy in New York said, Hey, I saw your short. Do you mind if I put it on YouTube? And I was like, sure, man, whatever. And it ended up getting like 11 million hits or, and it went viral. But yeah, that's, that's sort of the, the, the overview of how I got to making my first film. You think maybe your combination of doing commercials and maybe coming from Australia, like outside Hollywood, you saw things more globally because your, your movies have big universal appeal. Do you kind of see it that way? Yeah. I mean, I certainly had an obsession with, with genre films, you know, I remember like, like films like the thing and alien and, and, you know, like just really had a huge impact on me. And it was such sort of a visceral experience and I wasn't afraid of genre. If anything, I love, I embraced it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and I sort of dabbled in, in making some, 
you know, there was in, in the short film arena. I mean, I think the best thing about film school is you just make so many shorts and a lot of them just are garbage and they don't work. But every time you make a short film, you're learning and you learn, you know, you learn more from your failures than you do from your mistakes. And I certainly had an, enough failures. Um, but yeah, I guess it was, you know, I had, it was a, American cinema was huge influence on me growing up. Um, and then um, I think, you know, like, I, I do I remember at film school bef before I graduated uh, you know it was time to make a decision whether it was you know there was sort of two paths like you could potentially take because I wanted to take like a real world approach it's like I, how do I make money from this because I was in huge amount of debt making all the shorts and let alone trying to pay rent it was like how do I buy food <laughs> Um, but actually I got a job. My first job out of film school was cutting film trailers. Um, and that was something I, that I, I found I, I was I quite, I quite enjoyed it too, because it was like isolating, taking a film, you know, and this was, these were Australian productions and then, um, actually got a little bit of work out of it at the time. And it was kind of cool, which was, you know, like reducing a film. And that was actually a really cool, interesting way of like, well, how do you sell a film, you know? And that's mm -hmm. a, a marketing tool in itself, but it's also like, what is the genre of this film, yeah. you know? And and sort of reducing it to its fine elements. Um, but yeah, and then, and then of course, I think, you know, like with the commercials is, is you know, you're learning how to like, that really trained me in, in, the aesthetics of, of the craft, you know, and, and it gave me an opportunity to play with all these big toys because some of the budgets in the commercial world are, you know, they're up there. Yeah. So, you know, while the shoot might only be three or four days long on a scale of a feature, it's, they're not dissimilar in terms of the scale and scope of how a physical production sort of works. Um, and that, that was really great training ground, especially just that you get to work with some of the best professionals, in the industry, you know, I got to work with some phenomenal DPs around the world. And, and again, I was like, well, what a great training ground. I was, felt like I was at film school all over again, but more sort of in that commercial space. Um, yeah. What do you think of the, um, so if you, you mentioned Raising Arizona, if you had to categorize that, that's kind of an action comedy, even though it feels like something different. Do you think action comedies have kind of taken over today? It feels like there's more of those than there are just straight comedies or straight action movies. Yeah, I certainly think it's, there is, I think, I think, certainly, I mean, well, if you look at the theater space, the ex, exhib, exhibition space today, it's like, you know, in order to be in the cinema because of streaming, you know, mm -hmm. streaming's taken up um, a lot of the sort of mid to lower levels, you know, of course, you know, there's there's huge productions that netflix are involved in now but um i think it has you know like in order to get a film on the screen and to to have a shot at winning the weekend then it has to for audiences has to feel like well i, I want a big screen experience um and then you know I, so that's obviously where the action element I, I believe comes into play because it is that big visceral experience and it's a big canvas and you want to see it on the big screen and hear it through that big sound mix. And then I think with comedy, you know, comedies play best in a big room, you know, with a big audience. And I think that's something, if anything, that's what COVID has sort of taken away is like that, that rolling laughter you get from watching. You know, I used to go and I was obsessed with 
every weekend when I was in Melbourne while I was at film school, I'd, there was this, there was a, the local pub that was literally like a five minute walk from my house. Every Sunday they had comedy stand up that went from, it went from 11 in the morning until like 12 at night. <clears throat> and it would start with like, you know, it was like people just getting up and, you know, cold it was like their first i had open mics basically and it was you know if you thought you had the chops you could get up but um yeah now that i'm talking about that that probably had quite a big influence on me as well because um you know like getting that sense of what works in with the crowd once you get yeah. a crowd going you know like if i were to say like you can watch actually i did it when we were shooting hitman's wife's bodyguard in london um i was fortunate enough to um get a, a special ticket to go and see Bill Burr's show, Paper Tiger. And uh, that I watched that and they were recording the Netflix special and, um, and I watched it and then I went back and then, you know, about a year later it came out on Netflix and then I, I watched it again on Netflix and it, and it just, you know, it really made me realize I was like, you know, you can't as, you know, it's still great on Netflix, yeah. but capturing that group experience of laughing with a packed audience, you know, it was like yeah. 50, thousand people there um so I, so I think that's probably what what the draw is to the action comedy was there any so both of these movies i just saw the second one i saw the first one i think when it came out i would say they're like just language wise they're pretty hard r with the r rating was it always meant to be that way because i know not long ago studios were pushing for mostly pg-13 movies like this was yeah. it always was it always an r movie with that type of comedy uh, well, I, I was adamant that it had to be R and, uh, Ryan was as well. And we both agreed that we would both walk if it wasn't R. So that sort of distinguished that conversation. And it, yeah. we just said, it. I mean, it had to be because to me that that's, there's so much comedy gold to be had just with, you know, you've got the every man, so to speak. Well, yeah. the, the story, each of the films is told through Ryan's Michael Bryce's POV and to have him in a situation of extreme violence that the world that, you know, Samuel Jackson comes from right? where it's like Darius Kincaid lives in a world of death and it's, it's not uncommon. And you know what, someone's trying to protect life and someone's trying to take it away. And to me that, that, that to have that contrast and to really sort of push it to the extreme, which is, you know, it, it, there's not a lot of subtlety in the Hitman Bodyguard <laughs> franchise, you know, like everything gets turned up to 11, yeah. which I, I really love. I love it. What are the, uh, for, for this most recent, what do the scripts look like in terms of action? Like, so we talked to the director of the Mission Impossible movies. They've kind of went in a way where like, let's go get there, find a beautiful setting and create the action on the spot to a degree. How much is on the script and how much is like, let's adapt this to where we are. Uh, I think it's it's certainly both. Like you'll have an idea. I think you know, like for an, as an example, would be that um, I think the original script. Certainly, the first thing I read had a you know it was a small moment where where Kincaid jumped in a speedboat and you know basically blasted down the down down a canal and and then it lost the guys and then they caught up and the hitman and the bodyguard caught up later uh and then we we really said about we were like you know if we're going to go to amsterdam let's turn this into a really sort of monstrous um uh chase sequence cat and mouse you know that was the thing that that i got really excited by 
So then it was like, well, what's the dynamics of that? You know, we've got like, let's have multiple bad guys in multiple SUVs chasing this speedboat at the same time. We've got Ryan Reynolds on a motorbike chasing Kincaid and Kincaid's Mm -hmm. trying to escape on his speedboat. Then you've got obstacles in the canals. So, you know, obviously it was with that one it was to go my first the first thing i did as soon as i signed on to do the film was was to go straight to amsterdam and start looking around at all the canals Mm -hmm. and to get a sense of it because i knew ideas would come from the environment and the location itself and it's like okay wow you know and, and if you actually if you look at that sequence there's not one of those canals are actually connected it was it was it was all through scouting mm-hmm. and i ended up doing like 15 scouts and we prepped that that sequence was prepped over four months because it was it was a lot of moving parts and very sort of dynamic and then it was like the fun and games of like oh what are the what are the obstacles that could get in his way mm-hmm. you know and we had boats to, you know i remember i was in amsterdam and i was like i see all these party boats floating by because it is such a beautiful city and you know, often you get a lot of a lot of people will just rent out a boat and they're drinking wine and sipping things. And, you know, it's a beautiful sightseeing place. And I was like, well, let's, how do we involve that for sure? Yeah. And then, um, yeah. Do you have more freedom with the second one to do that? Like I would imagine you've got the success of the first one. The studio is maybe more open to letting you guys go when there's not that much on the page and like, we're going to figure this out when we get there. How did yeah, that some, like certainly sometimes it'll just be like, I know we're going to have a car chase here. And it's like a, cause you want to, and with the action genre is, is you want to vary the action because it's like, if, if it's gunplay that that can get boring really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's like, okay, well, how do we sort of change the dynamics of that? I know with, you know, and, and then sometimes often you'll have in the script, it'll just be two lines. It's like there's an epic car chase or there's an epic speedboat chase. Literally, and it's, it's like it's there as a placeholder and everybody in production knows yeah. what's coming, that it's going to be more than that. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, especially the way that scripts are broken down when they're budgeted, like you can take those two lines and it doesn't reflect the amount of time and effort, energy and resources and time that's going to go into that sequence. So that's usually an ongoing conversation that's happening because from, from the beginning, the line producers are like, well, what's your prediction of how many days you're going to require in Amsterdam to shoot that chase? And, you know, you're in your head and you're saying, well, I think we're going to need, you know, whether it's two weeks main unit and it's going to be an additional two weeks second unit. And then maybe some of those days sort of slip and change between one and the other. Um, but yeah, there is, there is absolutely, there's the freedom of, of, of going to explore, you know, we've got a bridge sequence um, that, and then that came from, you know, I knew I wanted to have like a helicopter chase sequence with a vehicle and, um, and I asked them to, to show me what kind of bridges they had, or I was looking at canal, I'm sorry, at like steep ravines of like cliffs, you know, again, you're just always looking for what's something dynamic. And then we ended up finding this bridge that was like straight out of like a James Bond movie or something. And, um, and then my first question was like, can, can we fly a chopper under that bridge like over and over again? Like, so it's sort of rotating and and dipping and diving. And, and as soon as I was told we had the clearance to do that, I was like, lock it in. Okay. We've got a, dynamic bridge chase sequence with a chopper and and then that you know so yeah there's always um you're inspired by the locations you go and see and that that is something that that yeah i think you've got to i mean i certainly try and stay very sort of open about 
you know, I have, I have a sort of a, a general sense of what we want to achieve, but it's like, until I found the location, sometimes that location is actually going to dictate that action sequence. Mm -hmm. I know that there was, um, yeah, originally there was like a, in the first Hitman bodyguard where, where um, Ryan and Sam are trying to escape the building, you know, um, when they're after their first meeting and then that building gets raid, raided by these, these mobsters. Um, it was like, oh, okay, maybe there's a cat and mouse. That was sort of the original sort of idea that was there that there'd be a sort of a cat and mouse escape, you know, that maybe they subdue some of these. Well, certainly Ryan's character was going to subdue them without killing them. I mean, Kincaid was just going to blow their brains out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then somehow, you know, it would be like they would escape. Uh, I think there was like a fire exit or a, maybe some sort of trash shoot. And then I, w- I was like, ah, well, is that, I kind of feel like maybe I've seen that before. What's something else we could do? What if, what if it's like this, this building gets raided and they can't get down? So what if they go up because they're trying to escape these guys? So they get pushed to the rooftop. And then I was, that sort of got me thinking. And I was looking at locations. I was like, find me a really cool location where, you know, and you get constantly, you know, the, you can ask any director, like the number one thing that you're sick of after production is sitting in a minivan driving around looking at locations. Like I, I probably spent five years of my life in a minivan now, um, which anyway, it's uh, <laughs> can't all be fun and games, I guess. But then that that got me to this place. I was, and, and this is one thing in, in screenwriting. And I love, I really love being pushed into a corner, you know, and I think, because I think sometimes that's where the best ideas come from. You got to go, well, what's creative way out of this situation. So we, we pushed them to the rooftop and now it's like, you know, Ryan Reynolds character, Michael Bryce is like, well, that's just fantastic. Great. Now we're stuck, you know, and now there's a police helicopter and there's search lights. And now it's not only the mob that's coming up now, it's the, they've got to deal with the cops from above. And it was like, okay, cool. We've now got them to this rooftop. What do they do now? There's no way down. And then I was like, well, that, what a wonderful um, way to represent Kincaid's nihilistic qualities. If, like, what if we just jumped, you know? And what if we turned that into like a really cool jump where it's like not like really cool Hollywood cool. What if it's like really fucking messed up? And so like he's hitting this, this railing and then he's flipping backwards and it's the most ugly fall you've ever seen in your life and lands in a dumpster. And then he laughs it off, you know? And then there are, and that that's their escape and and um yeah so again i mean that came from the location and just being quite fluid with the notion of what that action sequence was going to be because there's certainly in the films you have action sequences but then you also have i call them action pops where it's like it's not really a huge action sequence but it is action but it's like what's the purpose of this and i was like well here i just want to reveal Kincaid through his action like through the the decision he made he just leaps off a building and that clearly defines the difference between him and Michael Bryce is that sort of the the pattern so like let's think of something possibly unique to this action sequence then ask does it fit the character and then maybe you add some comedy is that kind of how you think about it yeah yeah like I it's always like what what's a really great way that it can reveal character through these through the actions they're taking um and then it's you know and then certainly there's you know it's like this yeah if you look at the grandmasters it's like mad max fury road i think it's the prime example of the object of desire you know which is always a big one 
Um, and if I, you know, I, when I was doing the Amsterdam chase sequence, it's like, I, I, I was like, well, that, that's an object of desire, right? It's a cat and mouse. What does everyone want? They want Kincaid. He's in a speedboat. He's trying to escape and everybody's after him. And it's like, um, so we had Interpol and we had mobsters and we had Ryan on the dirt bike and we've got choppers in the sky and, and obstacles. And it's like, everybody's trying to get to that, you know, and that object of desire can be anything. And um, certainly in the Hitman's wife's bodyguards, everyone's after a certain briefcase that's, um, that Salma's got in her possession. Um, so then that, that sort of creates a nice sort of dance in itself. Um, so yeah, there's sort of different styles and different, different approaches to to action sequences and, and how they reveal story and plot and character tell me a little about that scene so there's a scene in the movie with the suitcase i think samuel jackson's like kind of playing the sniper they're both inside uh ron reynolds is acting as the bodyguard in the scene it's it's part of the evolution of like the shaky cam which was like lethal weapon in the born movies how do you kind of think about that and how do you use it for safety to switch out reynolds and doubles and some of those things yeah there's there's um there's actually i did a the commercial that sort of broke me through was a uh, um i did this honda commercial uh quite early in my um commercial career that I realized at the time, because prior to that, you had to use motion control if you wanted to sort of match a camera move. Mm -hmm. And then they created this thing came out called tracking, where you could now press a button on the computer and, and it would track key images in the frame. You know, it would track, say, the lines on the wall behind me or something. And then by just pressing that button, it, that that made motion control redundant because now you didn't need it. So that sort of got me thinking and I started to really become quite obsessed with, okay, that, that actually opens itself up for some sort of magical illusion tricks where I can actually swap an actor or I can link sh two shots together seamlessly and no one can tell. It looks like a crazy one, but it's actually, you know, stitched together very carefully. Um, and then, so I, that sort of, I, I made this commercial where it was like, did that. It, it looked like this crazy one style shot and it wasn't, it was like eight shots stuck together, but it had some crazy weird effects going on in it. And then um, I, I pursued that on a few other things that I did different sort of styles and, and levels and ways of doing it. You know, like these, these um, it's called a morph where you sort of morph stitch these frames together. It usually happens over three frames, you know, in the, mm -hmm you know, what we can perceive is 24 frames in one second. So when you think about three frames in one second, it's not that much time at all. Um, but it, it, uh, that sort of gave me the idea for the, for the big sort of um, fight sequence in the first Hitman bodyguard, um, which, which I applied, you know, going back to what you were saying before about different styles of, of action in, in, in that fight sequence, you know, everyone kept saying, Oh, we're going to shoot the fight sequence next week. And, and Ryan and I were both like, no, it's a chase sequence. That's what it is. He's not standing and fighting. He's not like Statham or something. He's, he's running away from these guys. He's fucking terrified. I would be terrified. Um, so that, that, you know, made me go, well, okay, it's a chase. It is a chase sequence because I, like I was determined it was going to be a chase sequence. But it, what it made me think about was like, okay, how do I turn this whole thing into a dance? And then that was applied in the Chuck Berry music we put over the top of that sequence. It was where he's fighting through a hardware store and a bakery and, um, and then like playing around with the dynamics of the dance. So 
that that fight sequence looks like it's a one-er, but it's actually about 42 shots stuck together, I think, in that sequence. But it's a really great way. It's a very handy tool because I can swap. I can be on Ryan for, you know, he's throwing punchings, wailing punches on someone. And as my camera comes around behind him, it's like just for that brief moment of, you know, you because what you can't morph is the front of someone's face, but you can morph profile or I can morph behind them as it swings around. So now I've swapped Ryan out uh, with his stunt double and now his stunt double's getting absolutely annihilated and blown through a wall or something just, you know, you don't want to put your actors through, but the, the you, you will put a trained stuntman through. So it, it sort of, it has certainly elevated the action in that, in that world and that space in that we can, you can flip out um, very seamlessly. You can swap uh, real world actors with, with stunt doubles. Um, yeah. Because the old school way was like, okay, the wide shots are stunt doubles and I'll just plug in actors, the close yeah. up for, for the actual faces. But now yeah. you have that sort of technique as well as along with sort of face replace, which sometimes works and sometimes it doesn't. Where do you think things are going with all this technology? So I just rewatched True Lies from like 1994, and it's like very clearly not Arnold Schwarzenegger doing a lot of these things. You can tell from the front, it's just not him, you know. Where do you think things are going with this technology and with things so seamless this way? Um, well, it's actually going the, the opposite way now. I mean, I think it's gone so far with, with, the, um, with the technical aspects of it and how the, the you know, computer tracking and digital face replacement and, you know, and a lot of these stuntmen, you know, they look very similar, you know, you dress them up in the same outfits, the same measurements, the same hair, the same makeup. But um, the one thing that's come out, you know, in the last few years is now that you can have these masks built and they cost about $8,000 each, but they're like rubber masks that, that, you know, I can pull a mask on and I can literally look like Ryan Reynolds and you would not be able to tell. I mean, obviously you'd be able to tell if it was a close up, but if it was me driving a car, yeah, you just got, you have no idea because it's, it's, you know, again, that I guess the technology and how they injection mold these masks, I don't understand the process of it, but I was playing around with, I found us, we were shooting a, an action sequence um, on a backlight in Bulgaria and I found someone brought it to me because I heard it was on the, on the studio lot somewhere. And I said, I want to see it. And it was a, a mask of Sylvester Stallone. Um, so I wore that for half the day and I was going, Hey man, Hey, action. <laughs> kind of really creeped everyone out to be honest. Can you share any details about your upcoming film, the man from Toronto? I think you're maybe in post-production now. Yeah, I am. I'm currently sitting on a sound mixing stage in Sony at the moment. We're doing post-production on it. Um, yeah, we shot that um, during the pandemic last year in, in Toronto, and we finished just before Christmas 2020. Um, so we've, we've been in post. Um, we've got a few, yeah, probably another four or five months of post to go. But, yeah, that's a really fun film. Um, again, it's an action comedy, but, you know, I think what, what I was interested in that, that film, it's about, the man from Toronto, who's who's this sort of lethal, he's um, sort of like the wolf in Pulp Fiction, so to mm -hmm. speak. It's like, hey man, if you need to get information out of someone, you get the man from Toronto because he can, he's a nasty piece of work. He can get information out of anyone. Um, and it's uh, it's you know what what I liked about that that script and the idea for it was was that it was a, a fish out of water type scenario, a mistaken identity plot, so to speak. So. 
there's poor Kevin Hart who has nothing to do in a criminal world whatsoever. Um, and why I was drawn to it and I, I pitched to Sony, I was like, hey, what if, what if we made a really sort of hardcore action thriller? Like we're making an action thriller where there's a homeland security threat. The FBI are hunting down this man from Toronto. And then you've got Kevin Hart, who should not be in this movie whatsoever. Like, right. you know, for me, that's where the comedy was. It was like the contrast of like, he's an average Joe, who's also a bit of a loser. Um, and now everyone thinks he's the man from Toronto. And in order to stop a Homeland Security attack, he has to continue to be the man from Toronto and the FBI end up using him. And um, <clears throat> so, yeah, a lot of laughs in sure. Who's the Woody Harrelson's the other character? Yeah, he's the man yeah. from Toronto. Yeah. Okay. How important are these? If you think about Kevin Hart and Ryan Reynolds, they're both kind of down the middle with very funny, but also very physical. Do you, how, how are those actors always attached before you come on or how important is casting like these perfect, you know, people for these movies? Well, often what happens is there'll, there'll be, um, you know, on the first Hitman bodyguard, um, Ryan was on the project and then, you know, in the original script for that, it was sort of like a straight action film. And then I met with him in New York and I was, I was like, this should be an action comedy and, and, and you should be like a really cool bodyguard for about 60 seconds. And then your number one client gets his head blown off. And then for me that I was like, then, then oh, this thing's got legs because then mm -hmm. it's like keeping up appearances. It's like, you still pretending that you're the world's best bodyguard. And it's like, nah, dude, you're a burned out, washed up. No <laughs> one will employ you, but you, you know, bullshitting to the world. Uh, and, and Ryan really identified with that and, and felt the same. And, and then, it, and then it, it spawned an idea in my mind where I was like, well, you know, then it makes us think, well, who did kill that person on the tarmac mm -hmm. in the opening 60 seconds? Because now that's a perfect midpoint reveal. You're going to reveal that it was Samuel Jackson's Darius Kincaid that took the fatal shot. Um, but yeah, and then and then there's certain projects where, you know, like there'll be an actor that'll be circling it. Uh, like with Man from Toronto, you know, Kevin Hart was was um interested in doing it and he was a big fan of um um Hitman Bodyguard and and then I met with him while I was shooting while I was shooting um the Hitman's wife's bodyguard. I was I we had a I had a, a FaceTime call with him and caught up and we really hit it off and I don't know, like so much of it is just about that that connection, really. I mean, it's is it's all about sort of people skills, I guess. I would say ninety nine percent of my job is is sales, <laughs> in a good way. You know, it's like it's not it's not so to speak. It's like you know, like if you want to if you want to direct a movie, then you've got to you know, you're not just it's not just dealing with actors. It's dealing with the twelve hundred crew that come with it, and it's dealing right. with the studios, and it's dealing with the with everybody it's like you've got to explain what the vision is to everybody and like everyone's got their separate jobs you know and and you've got to try and tie it all together and there's a lot of spinning plates there's a lot of elements um yeah it's that's hence it's it's a, a very exhausting job but i love it it's addictive I don't know. <laughs> to zoom in a little further from like just action comedy what do you kind of see between your last four films? So Expendables 3, both the Hitman films and Man from Toronto. Is it like playing with tropes? Like, what do you see as some of the rules of like, this feels like the movie I want to make? Yeah, I think with, with, um, with, with you know, that Expendables 3, that was like an exercise in survival. It was like, uh, you know, birth, 
inside the flaming pits of hell. And if you can survive that, you can survive anything. I certainly felt that way, you know, when you're juggling like 13 movie stars. Uh, and I do really love working with actors and um, I'm, I'm very vocal and, and uh, um, I think it's, there's a lot of, it's, there's just a lot of, you know, like, and what I do love about actors is they all come from a different place you know like everyone's got their own style the way they like to work their own personality their own creative rhythm their own creative flow and, and as a director you got to try and accommodate all these different personalities and there's a lot of strong personalities as well you know and it's like you know that's that's the bit that can that can sort of really you know but when you get it all together and it works then it, it's it's very rewarding and fulfilling um yeah it is certainly a big big part of, of putting these films together is just juggling it, all those separate elements you know. thank you for tuning in to the show if it's your first time listening make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel the blog the podcast and my new book Ink by the Barrel which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com you'll see the link in the show notes thanks again